Okay, so we're going to be reading uh, the book of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I'll make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged, all your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, demon, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march again not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done it, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire, and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Well, good day again, everyone. Uh, as I said, my name is Scott. Really good to be with you this morning. Um, why don't we pray as we come to the Word of God? Let's pray. Our good and loving Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak so clearly to us. And it's our prayer just now that you would calm our heads and our hearts to hear you. We've come from all sorts of different things that have happened for us this week. Please guide each of us to hear your word now and so live for Jesus our Saviour. We pray this in his name. Amen. 
Well, it's pretty common, isn't it, for siblings not to always get along. That's right, isn't it? All the parents are nodding, yes, yes. Uh, it began you know, way back with Cain and Abel, but it still runs through society today. You think of uh, Noel and Liam Gallagher, who basically broke up their successful British rock band in the 90s, Oasis, because they didn't like each other very much. Or the princes, William and Harry, uh, if anything that you read in the papers is to be believed, they seem to be at odds all the time. But have you heard of the rivalry between Adolf and Rudolf Dassler? Probably not. These brothers were shoemakers, German shoemakers, apparently very successful. They've got a company that they started together making shoes. But one day during the Second World War, one of them made a comment that the other took really badly and it ended up in a, a split between the two brothers. They went their separate ways. And as I said before, they were really good shoemakers. So for one of them, they uh, made the company Adidas, the other Puma. This is where the two companies come from, these two brothers, German shoemakers. Who here has a sibling? Raise your hand if you have a sibling. Now, I want you to keep your hand in the air if you've ever had a rivalry with one of your siblings. Most of the hands are staying up there, aren't they? My hand was up too, did you notice? Uh, I've got a younger brother, Dean, and in our teenage years, I think we probably caused our parents a bit of angst with, with the way we didn't get along back then. But if you want to talk about sibling rivalries, what we just read in Obadiah is like the culmination of a 1,500-year sibling rivalry. Let's go for a bit of background. Let's get some background on this. Uh, it starts with a guy named Isaac. You can read about Isaac in the Bible in Genesis chapter 25. Isaac has two sons. One of them is Esau, and one of them is Jacob. Now, these two sons are very different in their personality. Esau is your classic alpha male, right? He loves hunting. He loves the outdoors. He's your kind of boating, camping. He's your BCF guy. Jacob, on the other hand, is a homeboy. He prefers the indoors, quiet, probably reading a book. And so Esau is physically stronger than his brother Jacob. So as part of their sibling rivalry, how does Jacob get the upper hand? Well, he has to use his mind, his thinking, his wit, his cunning. And in fact, he deceived his brother Esau on more than one occasion. Things got so bad between them that Jacob had to flee to another country because Esau, his brother, wanted to kill him. This is, this is a major division in the family. But eventually, over time, they grew up, matured and mellowed out a little bit, and they learned to live close by. Not that they were neighbours, but say if one of them lived up here at Golden Grove, the other one was okay living down at Victor Harbour. But out of these two brothers come two nations. From the nation of Esau... Sorry, sorry from Esau comes the nation of Edom... And from Jacob comes the nation of Israel. And if you take a look at that, then you can see Israel eventually settles down in that part of the Middle East there along the coastlands and into the, up, up, up towards the hills. Uh, and Edom settles down there uh, in what they call the hill country. Uh, Israel had decent farming land. They grew lots of crops. It was a, pl- a good place to live because of, uh, of the farming land they had. Edom, on the other hand, had safety security. They live, like I said before, they lived in what they, what's called the hill country. Uh, let me show you a picture as an example of why this brings security. Take a look at this picture. This is kind of where the, 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 the Edomites lived. This, this was not a city built by the Edomites. It was built by a people group who were there after the Edomites uh, were forced to leave. 
But it shows, doesn't it, how, how safe this kind of area was. If you're the people who live here, your defences are so good that a foreign army really struggles to invade you and take over. That's where the Edomites live. And so the rivalry continues between these two brother nations. Eventually, Israel has a civil war, and it splits into two nations. So up north, you've got the place known that kept the name Israel, and down south, uh, the place became known as Judah. And now Judah is the one that's closer to Edom there. So often, it's those two nations that are against each other. Occasionally, Edom and Judah will uh, kind of combine forces, make an alliance, but most of the time they're rivals. Like for one, for example, one time Edom joined a bunch of other nations to attack Judah, and at other times uh, the Edomites became subjects of Judah because uh, Judah attacked them. This is going on for quite a number of years until eventually a bigger nation from up north called Babylon comes down, and they attack Judah, and they defeat Judah, and they take the Jews with them off to exile back in Babylon. And when that was happening, what did Edom do? How did Edom respond to their brother nation being under threat in a time of need? That's really what this little book of Obadiah is all about. It's the culmination of 1,500 years of this sibling rivalry that never really died down. That's the background to this book. Now we're going to really just do two things for the rest of the day. Firstly, we're going to just jump in and see what the book, what what the text of Obadiah says to us. And then we're going to think about what does that mean for us. So let's spend the next few moments then going through what does Obadiah say. And if you read through the book as it was read to us, it doesn't take you long to realise Obadiah is speaking a message of judgment. Of judgment against Edom. Just take a look at how it starts again. Look at what God says about Edom in verse 2. He says, See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. Just a couple of weeks ago, a bit before Christmas, I was out going for a jog, and as I was jogging along, I noticed a koala that was low down on a tree, just kind of about head height. And any excuse for stopping while you're having a jog is a good excuse. So I stopped and I busted out my phone and filmed it. I think it'll come on the screen now. Uh, there it is. You can see the koala there. I was film as I'm filming this. You start. You'll see in a moment. These birds start to swoop down at the koala. Now they're not very big birds, but they're much smaller than the koala. But they're having a go at the koala anyway. And I watched this for a little bit and I thought, why do these birds think they can get away with this? They're so much smaller. Surely if the koala just swiped its paw out at the right time, these little birds would get wiped out, right? So why do they do it? Well, perhaps they've got some babies they're protecting, maybe. Maybe they've done this before and they realise they can get away with it. Maybe they feel safe and they've got this sense of pride that's come then. We can do this. Nothing will happen to us. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe they're just creatures acting on instinct. But that sense of pride, that's the thing that's crept in for Edom. We've got this great place to live. Our natural security is is all around us. No invading army can attack us. We are safe to do whatever we want. That's what they think. 
But God says to them, through Obadiah, no, you will be defeated. So look at what verse 3, God says about Edom in verse 3, he says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like an eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And really, for the first nine verses in Obadiah, it's a note of judgment again and again. God says, I am against you, Edom, in judgment. Which makes you ask the question, why? What has Edom done? Why is God seeing them like this? And we get the answer in verse 10. In verse 10, uh, it's because of the way that Edom has treated Judah. In this verse, the Jews are called by the name of their ancestor Jacob. But God says to Edom, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Uh, Remember in the background, what's the big thing that's just happened? Judah has been taken into exile, defeated and taken into exile by the nation of Babylon. And what did Edom do while, while that was happening? Well, verse 11 says they were passive. They did nothing, but they sat idly by as Babylon swept through. Verse 12 says, though, they weren't just passive, but Edom took joy in Judah's defeat. They they gloated over Judah. Verse 13 says they didn't just take joy, but Edom also took plunder from Judah. They went into the Judean cities and they took what was left behind. They made themselves rich out of Judah's destruction. But the real low point comes in verse 14, where we find out that Edom assisted Babylon, that Edom participated in Babylon destroying the Jews. Let me read verse 14 for you. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. As Babylon ransacked Jerusalem, the city of the Jews, and as the Jews ran for their lives, there were the Edomites, waiting, but not waiting to lend a hand to their brother nation, not waiting to help them out. Edom lay in wait to capture the fleeing Jews, neither to kill them with their own swords or hand them back over to the Babylonians as slaves. And God sees this and God says no. God says about Edom, you will not get away with this. I am against you in judgment and you'll be destroyed. That's the message of Obadiah. God is saying about Edom, your day of judgment is coming. To modern ears, we hear this and we think, I don't really like all this talk about God and judgment. It just seems... You know, harsh and, and ungodlike to destroy a nation like this. Isn't God supposed to be the kind of God who loves? This seems so unbecoming of God. And in some ways, that's right. God's judgment is a serious thing. 
God's judgment is a severe thing. We should not take it lightly. But it's also true to say God's judgment is just. It's also something that is right. See, God is not the God who is there and something annoys him a little bit and it just gets too much for him and he, he, in a fit of rage, he just flies out of control. That's not God's judgment at all. God's judgment is careful, it's appropriate, and it's right. Take a look at what verse 15 says. Talking about God's judgment. As you've done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. God's judgment is appropriate. And that's certainly true for Edom. If you've got it open in front of you there, in verse 12, you look and you see that Edom gloated over Judah's downfall. And so in verse 2, Edom themselves will be humbled. In verse 13, Edom raided Judah. So in verse 5 and 6, Edom will be raided themselves. In verse 14, Edom ensured that Judah had no survivors, so in verse 18, they too will have no survivors. There's an appropriateness to God's judgment. What Edom has done to others, so it will be done to them. And you know, from our point of view, we're living in a country that hasn't seen the ravages of war in a very long time. And, And most of us here, we've not been treated like the Jews were back then with cruelty, as if our lives had no consequence. From our point of view, we might still see this judgment as overly harsh from God, but put yourselves in the shoes of the Jews for a moment. Living in Jerusalem there, under siege from a mighty foreign army that's come against you with all of their power. And finally they crack through to the defences of your city, And they're in there, reaping havoc, doing unspeakable things. And so you run. You end up with a bunch of your neighbours fleeing out of the city. And somehow you you manage to make it out of the city, and then you just keep running. Four or five days, you're on the run trying to get away. And just when you think you might be safe, just when you think maybe we've escaped this invading military force, Just when you've reached the protections of the mountains where they can't bring their horses and carts, just when you think you might be safe, that's when you get ambushed. That's when you see your neighbours, people you've known for many years, just cut down with swords. The rest of you kind of just stop and throw your hands up. You beg for mercy, please stop. But they take you back the way you came. They hand you over. Can you imagine seeing one of your neighbours talking to their kids? See her telling her kids, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. When everyone knows it won't be okay, it won't be all right. You're about to be handed over to be slaves from one of the cruelest, most vicious military forces in the world at the time. Put yourselves in the shoes of a Jew for a moment, back then. And you can see, can't you, the judgment of God is a good thing because God does not let evil just go on as if it doesn't really matter. 
God is not a tyrant who flies out of control in fits of anger. He is a God who judges with justice, with fairness. And that is a good thing. That is a thing we need. And so Obadiah says, Edom, your day of judgment is coming because God will not let his people be mistreated. God will not let his people be mistreated. But actually, Obadiah is about more than just Edom's judgment. It's actually a message for all the nations. It's reminding everyone, everywhere, in every age, that the judgment of God will come on us all. Edom is a prime example, but the message of judgment is for all. Look at verse 15 again. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you've done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. God judged, God's judgment will come on us all. You might think at this point, gosh, there's lots of judgment in this book of Obadiah, isn't there? But it ends on a note of hope. Uh, if you look in verses 19 and 20, you'll see a lot of place names, places like the Negev and Gilead and Zarephath. And if you can't understand, what's this all about? Like, who even knows where these places are anymore today? Why is this important? Or why is it important in, in verse 19 that the people of the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines? Who are the people of the foothills anyway? The basic idea of these last three verses is the idea of hope. It's hope for the Jews who are in exile because God is saying to them, I have not forgotten you. I have not forsaken you. You might be on this far off land, but don't think that I've left you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to put you in your land again. I'm going to make sure that you have more land than ever before. It's going to be good. There's hope for the Jews in exile. And it's actually hope for the other nations too, because what does it say to them? God's judgment is coming, but do you want to experience God's blessing? Then don't stand against my people. Stand with them, join them, be part of them. Belong to the people of God, because that is good. And that's how Obadiah ends. That's, that's really just a, a, a quick sketch through the book. We've skipped over a lot of detail, but let's mention out. What does this actually mean? What does this mean for us? What did it mean for the people who heard it back then? What does it mean for us today? I, mean, I want to say two things here. Firstly, God will bring justice to his mistreated people. Now, the key here is that Obadiah is a lot about Edom, but Obadiah is not a book written to people who lived in Edom. Obadiah was actually written to the Jews. He's writing to the Jews, and God is using Obadiah to tell his people, yes, you have been mistreated, but I'm not unaware of this. I'll bring justice to your oppressors. Edom will face my judgment. Again, imagine you're a Jew who's hearing this. Can you imagine the relief this brings to you? The tears that you've shed 
have not gone unheard. The cruelty that you've endured will not be swept under the carpet and forgotten. God is going to act. God is going to bring justice for his mistreated people. And I'll say to us today, we have that same God. His character has not changed. Just as he promised justice for his mistreated people back then, so he'll deliver justice for his people today too. Now, many of us, perhaps even all of us, will not have faced the kind of cruelty that Judah experienced back then. But you know, that's unique for us in Australia. Most Christians, many Christians, most Christians across the world do experience this kind of mistreatment. Think of the Christians in Iraq and Syria when ISIS swept through a few years ago. Think of what they endured. Think of the Christians in China today who live under a government that routinely seeks to destroy, seeks to destroy their faith. And the list goes on, friends. Many Christians today across the world face great mistreatment. What do we do about that? Friends, can I urge us to pray for these brothers and sisters of ours? Pray that they don't give up because they face much pressure to do that. Pray that they don't give up. And pray that God will bring his justice for them, for his mistreated people. Will you pray for these brothers and sisters of ours? That's the first thing Obadiah says to us. Uh, God will not leave his mis- uh, God will bring justice for his mistreated people. Second thing, Obadiah screams out to us that it is good to belong to the people of God. Remember, Obadiah says, the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment is near for us all. But the promises of God's blessings are open to us all too. See, through Jesus, God's promise of deep and lasting blessing is for everyone across the world today. Obadiah ended by giving hope to the people he was writing to, to the Jews. But you know what? They never really experienced what Obadiah spoke about there. Not fully, at least. Some of the exiles did return, but not all of them. And they were brought back into their land, but their land wasn't enlarged. And they were in their land, but they didn't rule over themselves. They had more powerful nations that kept ruling over them. This time of great blessing didn't come for the ancient Jews. And you think, why? Did God not come through on his promise here? No, but actually, God is preparing them for something better. God is using the language of the Jews and and, and the terms that the Jews understood there to talk about something bigger and better. A time when God would gather people, not just from exiled Israel and Judah, but from all nations. And he'd bring to them to a kingdom that is not just a patch of land in the Middle East, but instead he promises his people a new heaven and a new earth. One where the problems and the cruelties of this world will disappear. One where God himself will be there with us face to face friends this is what jesus brings a king that is not of this world 
but a kingdom that is far greater than anything can ever hear, that anything here can ever offer us. It is good, then, to be part of the people of God. The new year is upon us, and I wonder how you're feeling about the year ahead. You might have a lot of reasons to feel hopeless about 2022. Troubles at home, concerns over money, uncertainty over job security, worries about the kids, or worries about COVID, you know. We're starting another year with COVID still here. Weren't we supposed to be done and dusted with this, like throughout last year? But here we are, start of 2022, more cases than ever before. Who knows what 2022 has in store for us? Maybe you're feeling hopeless about the year ahead. Look, if that's you, I just want to say, have you heard the message of hope that Obadiah speaks to us? That it is good to belong to God's people. That the promises God gives us are true and certain. I want to urge you this year, hang on to these promises of God. Let God's promises, his promise of a new heaven and a new earth, a promise of life with him, a promise of of life free from the worries of this world. Let God's promises speak to you. Let God's promises shape your life and even the way you think about life and the year ahead. Hang on to these promises even amidst the, the, the worries and troubles that the year will throw at you. Some of us are going to be feeling really eager about the year ahead, right? We're keen, we're, we're ready to get into it. We've got plans, things to do, things to achieve, got goals, things are going to drive us. We're looking forward to personal milestones and family celebrations and we've got fun experiences planned for the year ahead. We look forward to so much because, well, the year just holds so much promise for us, doesn't it? Is that how you're feeling about the year ahead? If that's you, I just wanted to remind you, these things aren't really about what 2022 is, is for us. What we need to be excited over, what, what we need to be eager to be involved in is just this simply, simple thing of, of belonging to the people of God. That should drive us in everything we do in the year ahead. We might put so much value of what we can get out of the year, of the plans we have, of the things we're going to achieve, but if the last couple of years has taught us anything... Surely it's taught us that our plans and our hopes and our dreams can get turned over like that. At the end of the day, this simple thing of belonging to God's people is a far better thing to hold on to, a far more sure promise to build your life on. Because God makes these great promises, but he can also deliver on them. And he will deliver on them. Friends, the message of Obadiah says to us, will we let this hope, this great hope of God that he speaks to us, will we let this shape our year in 2022? Let me pray for us and ask that that would be the case for us. Let's pray. Our loving God, our Saviour, we give you thanks for this book of Obadiah and we wanted to pray for the year ahead. Help us be mindful of those who are our brothers and sisters who are enduring far more than we ever have. Teach us to pray for them. Lord God, would you help them keep hold of Jesus 
even though they're mistreated? Will you bring justice for them? And for us, Lord, we pray, will you keep us resting on the promises that we have through our Lord Jesus? We pray that those things would shape our year and so we'd honour you and live for our Lord Jesus this year. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.